0: The sucker's going
1: up. Yeah, just let it catch up. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we didn't sell in May, and we haven't gone away. It's June, and welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I've got Steve D with me. Uh, Paul is away at the moment, enjoying his bank holiday somewhere, I imagine. Uh, but we've still got plenty to talk about here. Steve, how's your bank holiday going?
1: Uh, not too bad, to be fair. I've been doing a little bit of uh, gardening and I've managed to pull my back, which is quite interesting, although it seems to be a bit better today. Um, so you're the less moaning and groaning as I move around. Um, <laughs> stock market-wise, though, uh, what a day yesterday was. So we're recording Friday morning, which is strange for us. We should be at work, but God bless the Queen and all that. Um, yeah, I think yesterday was a bit of Aurora for me. Steve, How 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 was it for you?
0: Uh, Yeah, yesterday was very interesting uh, for me, particularly on some of the kind of more speculative or stuff that I guess uh, speculative is a bit strong, really. But the stuff that I own that has been doing less well uh, with rising interest rates and high inflation since the beginning of the year, some of that stuff started kind of coming back a bit. It's still some of it's quite red and it's still got a long way to go. And I'm reminded of the fact that. You lose 50%, you have to get 100% back again, basically. Uh, by which I, I don't mean I've lost 50%. I mean, the amount you have to get back is more than the amount you lose, in percentage terms. But yeah, yesterday uh, started showing some signs of life. I'm watching this uh, carefully, I think. The bank holiday is an interesting one. Uh, for me, my work doesn't recognise bank holidays, uh, because we have basically 40 days of term uh, in teaching time, which we're currently in at the moment. And if we took out three May bank holidays... Uh, which we're having this year, we'd basically be losing 10% of our teaching time anyway, and we'd all have to catch our teaching time up anyhow. So I've just rearranged things to be available on a Friday morning here rather than um, having it off kind of automatically. But it's fun to be here. Um, Let's get on with talking about some news then, uh, in that case. So we had a show kind of lined up, and uh, last night Steve sent me a message, as we often do late at night because, you know, we're both married. What else is there to do? Uh, wondering whether we could talk about this thing about Orca shutting down. Uh, was the way you put it to me, and I, I had a bit of a look at this, and I googled Orca shutting down. Uh, and as far as I can tell, this this isn't, I assume, the story about SeaWorld closing its Orca breeding uh, initiative or something like that. Um, what's going on here, Steve?
1: So um, Orca is um, a VC-led uh, competitor to Free Trade and to Trading Two One Two. Out of the blue yesterday, they just announced that they were. Um, they were finding it very difficult to get the sort of VC funding that they need to continue, and uh, they were basically giving everyone notice that they were going to shut down in a uh, in an orderly fashion. Um, you've got essentially a month to um, start the process of moving away from Orca. Um, from reading their FAQs, just quickly for everybody, uh, there's no risk of you losing uh, your your capital. Obviously, uh, from this, you can. Transfer out, although they are charging £25 per line uh, to transfer out stocks. Uh, from what I can see, you can sell your stocks down and transfer it as cash. And there doesn't seem to be a charge for that. And they're also waiving the FX fees and the commission fees for for both of those um so i mean this is a broader a point for us that was quite interesting steve and i are monzo shareholders and we we just chatting off air about how we think monzo is probably a lot further down the line than orca but a tightening of vc belts in the uk steve does is that worrying you a bit it
0: doesn't worry me much like you were saying the only thing i have that i think would be really vc funded would be something like monzo and i i guess it's not great uh that that's the way things are going. I suppose it's not also a tremendous surprise. It's a good thing to see it's kind of orderly from Orca, though, uh, which I guess is encouraging for people who have their money in brokers that they might see as similar, that there is an opportunity for these things to not suddenly have a mass panic uh, or something like that. I've got limited experience with Orca, uh, for what it's worth. I did sign up to the platform a while ago, I think, because friend of the show, Casper, uh, I was either I was attempting to get a free share out of him or he was attempting to get a free share out of me. I uh, can't remember which way round it was. It doesn't really matter. I'm very willing if it was him and he was very willing if it was me. Uh, I don't actually remember ever getting that free share out of Orca for what it's worth. So no wonder they're shutting down, uh, in my opinion. They can't even run their free share campaign properly. But no, um, uh, I don't have any deep thoughts on that one particularly. Did you ever sign
1: up to Orca? I did, yeah. I think the same same thing. I think I signed up with Casper's Link and I got a share of Boohoo and it was about £2.80 or something <laughs> like that at the time. So uh, that collapsed. I remember selling it pretty... I sold it about 160, and so I have really no interest in Boohoo. And I tried buying a few things. But my main problem with Ork was that uh, they didn't even have all of the UK stocks that you kind of wanted. So your, things like your ITM Power were on there. I think Sarah's Power was, which is, was strange. But they have two quite hot UK growth stocks that people seem to be interested in. Uh, but they didn't have any US stocks. And it was only in the last couple of months that they've actually introduced US stocks. So it seems strange that we've got to this period where they were, you know, a couple of months ago, they were rapidly expanding and now they're they're struggling to attract um, funding to, you know, to to continue building the service. I assume this is a traction related thing. I imagine some VC funders looked at this and said, look, we give you a million pound last year and you've only got a thousand customers. Uh, that's not enough. Do you know what I mean? mm and I am assuming yeah. that's the issue, but I don't know what the issue is. I'm, I can only guess.
0: Yeah, so tougher time for uh, VC money around at the moment. Then it feels like it wasn't so long ago that basically everything uh, was getting VC funded, even stuff that was kind of an idea and sort of not much more than an idea. But I guess one of the sort of take-home points from this then is that at least that shutdown is reasonably orderly. And I don't know as Orca's the type of brokerage that or platform that would cause significant amounts of youtube videos to come out about its decline and uh you know the kind of thing people at least talking as though it's kind of the end of the world and everything is going to hell and and maybe there's a kind of a line to be made here in youtube video of saying what's next free trade two one two you know the kind of bigger ones that i think more people were sort of on it feels like orca were just a little bit late to that party i guess and maybe there's a, a lesson there in terms of being a first mover as an advantage
1: I think it's not just that, though, is it? There there was no special features to Orca. There was nothing, mm-hmm. actually, when you looked at Orca that you thought, oh, it's doing that better than anybody else. I mean, just off the back of Orca launching, there was Lightyear, and Lightyear was essentially the same app. They just did US <laughs> stuff rather than um, rather than UK. And there's, obviously, there's Revolut, which is kind of doing it as a bit part, and that seems almost exactly the same as, as those other two services. Um, Lightyear and Revolut are both a little bit cheaper than... Um, than Orca was, so yeah, Orca did nothing better than anybody else, and that's the main issue. If, if you're going to launch a competing service, you've got to be, you've either got to be incredibly good marketers, or you've you've got to be better at something. <laughs> and I think Orca's main problem was uh, they, they were neither of those things. Hmm.
0: How's the weather where you are, by the way, Steve? It's quite a nice day here.
1: it's a, it's a bit it's a bit grey.
0: Yeah, you, you live a bit further north than I do, don't you? So mm. uh, it's, it's quite nice here. Sun's out. Uh, there's a little bit of cloud up there, but apparently there is a hurricane coming. Uh, Jamie Dimon said on Wednesday that um, he was at a financial conference and said, you know, I said there's storm clouds, but I'm going to change it. It's a hurricane. And he said, you better brace yourself. JP Morgan is bracing ourselves and we're going to be very conservative with our balance sheet. Um That's interesting. You hear kind of people who are fairly enthusiastically often uh, shouting about tightening economic conditions and stock market crashes and so on. Jeremy Grantham is a very good example of this. He says crash every day and is right uh, one in every, I don't know, several thousand times. Yeah, uh, something like that. But um, maybe that's the point uh, in a certain way, right? You'd rather be right those times and just not get taken out. That's up to him to decide. But Jamie uh, Dimon is not uh, an enthusiastic crash-shouter or pessimist or something like that. Um, and he's been around a while, we've mentioned before. He's he's seen difficult financial conditions before. He was there in the uh, 2008-09 crisis at J.P. Morgan. And when he speaks, people listen, rightly or wrongly. Um, uh, what do you think about his comments, Steve, if anything?
1: Um, interesting is probably the word I would say to it. Um, like you said, Diamond is it, it's, it's not somebody who comes out and... and really says that economic conditions are, are going to be terrible. He's not a, a doom and gloom merchant at all, and he is um, sort of a pragmatic uh, old head in the banking industry. So it tends to be that when he talks, people listen. So I, I was interested to see that on the day of him making those comments. Actually, the market didn't perform as badly as i thought it would um i mean we've got a lot of bad news around at the moment we've got diamond promising hum- uh, hurricanes we've got um yeah <laughs> we've got quantities tightening about to start uh, inflation still rampant in the eu we've got a war uh going on in in ukraine and yet the market at the moment just seems a little bit tepid so diamond explained this to us he thinks we're in the eye of the storm at the moment and you know what what's you know we're in the calm and, and what's coming is the Is the horrible stuff but he also mentioned that he didn't know whether it was going to be absolutely horrible or just a little storm and i think that's kind of where everybody is at the moment i think that's kind of like somebody's grabbed the headline out of the obvious there um but yeah i think nobody really knows what's going to happen with the market i think if you put your head on you say there's still probably a little bit of red to come but the market doesn't really care about that sometimes sometimes it's so forward-looking That perhaps it's already priced us in already and on from here is, you know, is the beginning of a new bull market. I guess we just don't know at the moment.
0: Yeah, I sort of agree with that. So when we were looking back in the kind of depths of the pandemic crisis, everyone was aware that there was a lot of pretty loose monetary policy around. uh, And people argued whether that was a good thing or not. And there's good arguments to be had either way there. But whatever it was, it was happening. And we know what loose monetary policy leads to. It leads to inflation. Uh, You stick more money into a system... Um, and effectively the price of everything goes up uh, because demand goes up and supply stays constant. And actually now what we've seen, admittedly not in a way that anyone predicted, is something like war in Russia clamping down uh, supply as well in a lot of areas. So, okay, we're getting inflation. And everyone thought we were going to get inflation uh, because how could you not with the kind of uh, stuff that was needed to try and keep businesses afloat during COVID? Not saying that's a bad thing at all, but there was never really a credible argument to me to the view that... um, there's not going to be inflation, uh, basically. Um, And that's not going to be a problem, one way or another. It's a problem that might be worth it, but it's not going to be no problem at all. And yet the markets during COVID just went fine. Uh, They went up and up and up and up and up as interest rates came down and down and down and down and down. And everyone knew that that can't last forever. Interest rates can't stay there forever. The real question was, when's it going to change? And no one really seemed to care. Uh, The entire thing was being propped up by a kind of um, liquidity paradigm, as uh, Mohammed Alarian calls it, which I think is a good way of putting it. Hmm. And everyone knew it couldn't last, but they weren't particularly interested in the idea of trying to work out when it would uh, end in a certain way. And Jamie Dimon's comments get me feeling a little bit sort of similar to that, for what it's worth. I mean, okay, so he's predicting a kind of big ish recession, I think, in terms of uh, a financial hurricane. And JP Morgan is getting ready to batten down the hatches. and. I suppose implicit in there is an idea that maybe we ought to do the same. I feel like, in my case, I'm looking out with a a 30-year time horizon, and when I think about I've got 30 lots of earnings, effectively, or annual earnings. Don't worry about quarterly for the moment. Did I think there was going to be no recession in 30 years when I was buying stuff? Almost certainly not. Uh, I figured there's probably going to be one, um, and uh, probably more than one, to be honest. And if that comes in year 1 or 2, rather than year 15 or 18 or whatever, something like that, Um, I'm not saying it won't also come in 15 and 18, for what it's worth. But I guess if you're thinking with a long term, you need to be prepared for the idea there's going to be recessions. I would care a lot more about this, I think, if I was looking with a five or a 10 year uh, time horizon, because I would be thinking, well, look, my returns are supposed to be coming in now. Uh, We're in the bit where these companies have done their growing bit. They've reached a level they're going to reach. Now I need them to make money. And if they're going to be blocked off from doing that by macroeconomic headwinds, that's a big problem for me, potentially. With a 30-year time horizon, I think I'm kind of less worried. Uh, You also have a long-term view here, Steve. Feel similarly?
1: Yeah, I guess for the majority of our listeners who are fairly new to the market, you've got to look at um, recessions and stock market crashes and corrections and things like these as gifts. Um, Essentially, in the formative years you're you're investing where your deposits matter more than the growth of the account, you really need times like this where uh, stocks that, Potentially have high growth in in their sales and and profits are going at cheaper than uh, cheaper than average values. It's um, it's it's one of the best things that can happen to your portfolio. No matter how crap it feels when you load up your account and you see some of your stocks are down thirty or forty no, percent, there there really are opportunities um to to pick up a lot more of a stock that you you believe in. The issue I think you're going to have is is always about conviction. When 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 something goes down so much, you always sort of first thought is always. Well, what did I miss? And sometimes the answer isn't really that you missed anything, other than that it was a little bit overvalued. And stock markets tend to overvalue to the upside and and, and then overcorrect to the low side as well. And it's your job as a stock picker to buy the stocks, um, you know, when they're when they're under their intrinsic value. So uh, we're probably going to do it at some point. We're going to try Steve and I to do a, a sort of a. Uh, a video on our video or a a show on how to value growth a little bit better. I think that would be something we could, uh, we could do, but, um, are we? It's a a tricky subject, but I think, I think together we could clash our heads and get Paul to do it for us. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think that's something we could probably do because at the moment I see a lot of people just plugging numbers into spreadsheets and coming up with some terrible figures for stuff. And, Uh, especially a a company that we're going to knock on to soon, Steve. So is that a nice little jump for you to introduce?
0: Yeah, okay, let's do it. Um, Here's a company that's hard to value with a a DCF spreadsheet, especially if you write the wrong numbers into it on purpose. Uh, The company's called Salesforce. I was uh, listening to a YouTube video this morning, actually, just as I got ready for this, because I'm interested in what uh, other... Other YouTubers? I don't feel like a YouTuber, but mm. uh, people on YouTube think. Um, and there's a really great YouTuber that I like uh, and have found out quite recently called, uh, well, his channel's called Capital Mindset. His name is Fabio. Uh, he has a video on spreadsheet recently. Uh, I was Fabio. showing Steve his video on MBR, which is a stock that I own um as we said praising names criticizing generalities right but uh I, I think fabio's channel is really great from what i've seen of it so far i would encourage anyone interested to have a look um he's a version of a he is a guy with a spreadsheet for what it's worth but he says a lot of intelligent things around that spreadsheet and the worry with spreadsheets is garbage in garbage out and uh, he might be wrong about what he's putting in because frankly anyone might be right but um I don't think he's putting in garbage uh, for what it's worth. He seems to me like a thoughtful, intelligent kind of guy. And realistically, I think that's all I can ask for uh, in a YouTuber. Someone thoughtful, someone intelligent. And then thoughtful, intelligent people can disagree with each other if they want. But he was looking at Salesforce. um, And uh, we've been looking at Salesforce as well. It feels like it's been at least two weeks since we talked about Salesforce. So it must be time to talk about them again. Uh, They've been reporting earnings, Steve. (laughs) What's been going on there?
1: Um, So the earnings looked pretty good to me. I think... um... There were some hit and miss areas and, um, there was definitely some areas where Salesforce could improve, but generally I think, well, myself and, and the market thought that these were quite positive and had some interesting comments from, from Mark Benioff as well. So, uh, just a quick rundown then. So the first quarter revenue was $7.41 billion, which is up 24% year on year. I always think that's kind of shocking because Salesforce is just a hell of a lot bigger than I think people realize, um, so current remaining performance obligation of twenty one point five billion dollars, which is up twenty one percent year on year. This is contracted work. Um, first quarter operating cash flow of about three point six eight billion, which was up fourteen percent year on year. They give some pretty interesting guidance as well, Steve. Pretty upbeat. Um, second quarter guidance seven point six nine billion to seven point seven zero billion. I mean that is. That is a tight that is a tight spread. Uh, that's actually up 21% growth year on year and update the full year guidance to 31.7 million to 31.8 billion which is up 20% year on year. So just a couple of things I pulled out the call on hiring. They said, we are hiring, but we're doing it at a much more measured pace and focusing the majority of new hires that will support com- uh, customer success, com- customer, and the, <laughs> execution well. yep. prior- <laughs> and the execution of our <laughs> top priorities. Another interesting bit, because we are quite acquisition heavy sales force. Um, they said, uh, we can see a right sizing on the number of valuations. I think that we we're all quite suspect of for quite a long time. But for us, you know, we've kind of laid our acquisition strategy down and we're done here for a while, which is great because one of the main concerns of Salesforce is the amount of stock-based comp they do and the amount that their shares outstanding is going up. They do like an all-stock deal or or a partly stock and partly cash deal. and You see quite a lot of dilution uh, on on companies that maybe aren't quite bringing the revenue to the table uh, at the moment, looking at you, Slack. Um, So... (laughs) I think um, that's quite interesting for me. So basically what Salesforce is saying is from now on, it's all about integration, less so about acquisition. And they're being a little bit tepid on hiring, but guidance is good and performance is good. Steve? It's
0: a funny stock at the moment, Salesforce. Uh, so all of that looks good. And the stock, uh, the market, as you say, agrees with you. Stock went up 7% after earnings or so. It's, I don't care what anyone says. I find it difficult to be looking at a stock not buy it and then want to buy it 7% higher later even if when I zoom out to the year-to-date chart, we're still looking at down about 26%. Mm. Uh, So this is a stock that has had a difficult year by anyone's estimation. Minus 26% is not a good result. Uh, That's not what anyone's hoping for. Um, And if someone said to you at the start of the year, would you like to buy this in June, 26% less than where it is now, I would almost certainly have said yes, uh, for what it's worth. And yet somehow, um, I realise this is exactly the wrong psychology. There's something about a 7% push that makes me think, ah, oh, the opportunity's gone, uh, hmm. or something along those lines. Um, but when I get past that thought and get thinking onto serious investing stuff, not just kind of stock chasing and hunting and momentum trading, which I'm no good at and can't do and don't really want to do, which is Convenient, given my lack of ability. But I sort of wonder to myself, when I try and value this business, what kind of a business am I looking at here then? So am I looking at a kind of business where um, what matters is the story because we're early in the, the cycle and, right, okay, the EPS number is pretty low for a company with that share price, but the EPS number is going to go up a lot. And the point isn't to make money now. The point is to put us in a position to make money later, basically. Or am I looking at a kind of company that's big, and established which it is in both cases you said it's bigger than people think uh and it is profitable um and all those kinds of things i mean in some ways i feel like this behaves like a kind of young company and in some ways it looks like an old company and that makes me a little bit unsure as to what i can think about it how do you think about this steve you own this stock right
1: i do yes so yeah full disclosure i do own this stock um i probably should have said that earlier um so i think salesforce is in transition between the two so it's uh the core of salesforce businesses which is the crm alone is quite mature and and even so uh, it's still growing at 20 percent plus every year so to do a traditional value on salesforce you you do well to factor back in costs that are not typical of a more mature business so um if you want to figure out the true cash flows of, of salesforce one of the things i would look to um factor back in especially if they were fully optimized for profit uh, is to take the R&D spend and put it back in, which is incredibly 14% of revenue on spend, which, you know, we're talking about a $30 billion um, uh, company uh, in terms of revenue here. So 14% of that is is quite a chunk, really, to be spending on, on R&D. Um, but they've got to spend that to, to keep ahead. So when you think of... Um, do you think of company size and, and the way they're expanding and broadening their offering, um, they've just brought in MuleSoft, they've brought in Demandware, which is an e-commerce platform, they've brought in Tableau, which is a data platform, they've brought in Slack, which I think we probably all use Slack, it's like a chat chatbot, Microsoft Teams, essentially, which is... Kind of embarrassing content in Slack came first. Um, but this has been that Salesforce has just been able to sort of grow some new legs and like expand its tendrils out uh, into the more e-commerce-y and more marketing sort of places. But the problem here is that they've got some really tough competition. So they've got Zendesk, they've got Twilio, they've got Adobe, they've got Oracle, and they've also got Microsoft now throwing a lot of money at their sort of competitive products dynamics. So there's a lot of competition coming for Salesforce too. So we may see a maturing of the business faster than we think, probably because they're going to get forced to. But um, I've been watching a few Salesforce videos like you, and most DCFs I see come out at about 105 to $115. And they think growth peters out over a five-year and reverts to sometimes 10%, sometimes 5% I've seen as well. But I was just looking at Salesforce's historic growth, and none of this competition is particularly new. We're not talking about something that's just come on this year. They've been competing with these businesses for quite a while. <laughs> Uh, in 2012, Salesforce was growing at 28% per year, and in 2017, five years later, it was growing at 25% per year. If you actually look at it today, it's still at 25%, with a huge backlog as well of stuff that's ready, you know, just just ready to onboard. So, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that this isn't still a growth story. I think it's it it is slowing to a degree, but. You would imagine that with the pandemic, they've brought forward quite a lot of growth, and yet they still seem to be realizing it. So the bet, I guess, with Salesforce is that this continues to grow at a good clip for for a while yet.
0: Yeah, I was trying to work out what I thought was priced into this using a kind of DCF thing, and I was trying to reverse engineer it, basically, because I think this stock is at the moment uh, and I could probably get myself to a point of figuring out enough about it to make an intelligent assumption but at the moment I feel like I can't estimate Salesforce growth rates what I could try and do though I guess is what I is figure out what I think is being priced into um free cash flow return at the moment based on current prices and so on and when I sort of did some fiddling around with the numbers I kind of thought it was priced for looking at a 10% rent, about 20% per year For the next 10 years, perhaps a little bit less than that if you start looking out over sort of 2030 and so on. Uh, Can Salesforce manage that, becomes the question. Uh, I don't know, Uh, becomes the answer. But I think that's what you're looking at. And it's not a million miles from where they've been and it's certainly not a million miles from where they are at the moment. Uh, You mentioned the point about R&D spend and that to me makes a lot of sense here. So a company that we have... Different views on, and by which I just mean we see them from different angles uh, in this particular thing, not that we violently disagree with each other, is Netflix uh, for the time being. Netflix looks to me like a business that has to spend a lot of money to make a lot of money. Um, and I'm not sure I can see that stopping uh, particularly ever. But in the case of Salesforce, I certainly can. Um, Salesforce gets its moat from high switching costs, as we've said before on this show. And so you need to work hard to pull in. Um, customers and you need to work hard on R&D but as you point out eventually that R&D spend can come down and fairly clearly can come down because customers that are in are going to stay in basically uh, and that to me makes a lot more sense to try and add that back in than it does in the case of a Netflix where it might be true and I'm less uh, it's less obvious to me that that's the case so Salesforce I feel that much more uh, sort of obviously here I saw that very tight spread uh by the way I was trying to use that uh for a kind of dcf uh estimate thing it's very easy to just take the midpoint of that and think that the margin for error is fairly small Mm. uh so yeah i i feel like there's i could see my way to salesforce here i still want some looking to do a little bit uh what else was kind of catching your eye there
1: i guess the only other thing that was um was catching my eye was that it's free cash flow is actually growing quite a lot faster than its, its sales outstanding. So um, one of the things we were looking at on the Discord last night, I don't know if you saw it, Steve, was that Palantir's revenue per share has mm. actually stayed completely static over the last four years because they're issuing shares at such a rate and not going yep. fast enough that the revenue is essentially um, the same, whereas Salesforce is growing rapidly um despite the fact that they've made two all stock acquisitions a cash and stock acquisition and a cash acquisition in that period of time cash acquisition you know fair enough say there's no shares outstanding but what tends to happen with those kind of deals is that management gets very very high stock-based compensation to sort of bring them all in line and keep them interested in staying at the business so four acquisitions in about five years lots of stock-based compensation um Salesforce is the antithesis to the "go, um, go work go broke" argument because they're arguably one of the most what ESG should be companies in the world. Very <laughs> high um, Glassdoor ratings. Benioff is pretty universally loved among amongst staff. Regularly in the top ten places to work uh, list. So. Yeah, really, really impressive from Salesforce. One of the things I would note is uh, when you're calculating out free cash flow for this company, they generated $3.7 billion in the last quarter. This is actually not typical um, for Salesforce because generally this quarter is um, – is a special quarter where a lot of their billions, their annual billions, come out. So uh, that cash flow, I would expect to to diminish quite a bit until probably the third quarter, where you should see another decent raise. And then uh, the the last quarter after that is where uh, where we see it high again. So yeah, a really interesting company. Uh, I I will. I don't think I'll be buying any more at the moment. I'm only down about fourteen percent on this one, so I'm not a million miles off. Yeah, it seems a strange thing to say, doesn't it? But uh, in terms of the market. I'm not a million miles off today's price. Um, I think the issue we've got with it is, is that growing at 20%, a company of that size, we, we're going to start hitting the law of big numbers at some point. But, I mean, 10 years ago when I used to look at Salesforce, I was thinking law of big numbers here, law of big numbers. And they've got a lot of young, fast-growing companies now integrated into Salesforce. That means that Salesforce can now start to charge its existing customers more money to, to use those apps. So I just... I just wonder with Salesforce, whether they're, they're the smartest company around and they're just, they're just, tep- you know, tempering the growth to 20% a year because they know that they can achieve that for a really, really long period of time. Now, I mean, that would take a genius to be able to do that for, uh, for 20, 20, 25 years, but uh, any has been doing it.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, so coming back to sort of my original question that I was asking of, is this a kind of young growth company or is this a mature thing? And that, kind of speaks to your thought about hitting the law of big numbers, right? The reason things shift out of being growth companies into, well, I guess young growth companies into mature growth companies, so think more kind of Google and Microsoft and so on, is that they start running into big number laws and it becomes harder to add 20% to a massive number than it is to add 20% to a small number. The main thing stopping me thinking that was just Salesforce's sheer size. When you're looking at young growth companies, I'm typically looking at between, well, some sort of ideally single-figures, Uh, market cap in terms of billions probably between 1 and 10 or something like that salesforce nothing like that it's a 100 and something 160 ish maybe Uh, same as the share price yeah Um, which is the only thing putting me off thinking of it as a young growth company because aside from that it behaves an awful lot like one as you were saying so stock based comp and uh, using stock or uh, equity to buy to make acquisitions with is very much the move of something that at least sees itself as a young growth company uh, because if you're a young growth company, you don't have the cash flows there yet to finance this sort of thing. You better start making your acquisitions with equity rather than debt because you can't make interest payments. Uh, basically, your your cash flows aren't there yet to help you make interest payments. So you should do it through stock. Now, no one likes share dilution. Uh, and it damn well better be worth it uh, if you're going to go giving away equity like that. Uh, it better pay off over the kind of long term. But in the case of Salesforce, it pretty clearly is right. Over the last decade or so, it's had a seventy-five percent shares outstanding increase, and its revenue is up by like eight hundred and sixteen percent. So, is it in a better place than it ought to have been? Than it would have been, sorry, ten years ago? Yeah, almost certainly. Uh, it's strange to see how I wouldn't give you seventy-five uh, percent of stuff for an extra eight hundred and sixteen percent of stuff. That's got to be an acceptable growth rate from what I can see with it. And the result of that is that share- Salesforce has, as far as I can tell protected its balance sheet pretty well by not taking on debt, by not using too much uh, cash for these sorts of things. It comes at the cost of dilution, but it has the balance sheet of a kind of youngish company, by which I mean there isn't loads of debt on it. What there is is reasonably well covered by its cash. About 60% of its assets, from what I can see of it, are goodwill, which is sort of timely for us. It's not so very long ago that we were looking at the reports from Amazon and uh, Teladoc and seeing big Goodwill write-downs. Um, what's your feeling about a balance sheet that's about 60% Goodwill, uh, Steve, other than, you know, I can now change Teladoc for Salesforce in the punchline of my Christmas greeting?
1: Huh. Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because Goodwill is the, the, the most common indicator of overpaying for something. And I think if we if we head back to uh, when the Slack deal was announced, I don't think there was many people out there that thought Salesforce were getting value for money out of that Slack deal. Slack was a small company that wasn't particularly well run. They had a CEO who liked to cry on TV and, um, <laughs> and yeah, he was permanently saying Microsoft had stolen his biscuits or something. as well I seem to remember. So it was a lot of money to spend on 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 Slack, but Slack was only a twenty odd billion deal, so there's more goodwill in there somewhere. Um, but it, that's the problem with buying these sort of uh, high growth. Uh, high expectation companies is that you have to you you know you have to pay for them and the result of which is that you have a big chunk of goodwill on your balance sheet that you're gonna have to write down at some point i would guess if salesforce continues to fall in price if we do have the hurricane that diamond is uh talking of we'll start to see some of that goodwill written down um but at the moment i'm not really too fussed about it
0: Yeah, fair enough. I'm trying to work out what I feel about Goodwill for what it's worth. I sort of feel like the point of Goodwill is that it's not really there, by which Mm. I mean it's, it goes under the intangible section, right, for obvious reasons. It's just a case of you sent out 100 billion for this company or whatever uh, and it has a book value of 50. So now what am I meant to do? I'm going to need to log 50 of that as Goodwill, basically. Mm. And as it turns out, it's not worth that 50, we'll gradually have to write it down and so on. So I feel kind of mixed about companies that have a lot going on in the goodwill division. Um, I feel like it's a... I like to see it in certain ways because I like to look at how much uh, in the way of tangible fixed assets and so on a company needs to make money. And the more of its assets are intangible, the less of them are tangible the less kind of expensive it is to run in a certain way, because fixed assets need replacing. They need uh, paying every three, five, whatever it is that you depreciate them over uh, years. And if you look at something that has a massive asset base, um, the word asset sounds positive, right? But you have to pay for your uh, whatever mm. they are, factories, so on, so forth. Um, so a company that doesn't have much in the way of those things, because all of its assets are in the goodwill side, I kind of view positively uh, in a certain way. I mean, there is danger of it getting written down, but and this seems to be a way that the market and I feel differently about things, and I'm still evolving my thinking around this issue. I don't really care about things that I don't really believe are there getting written down. Uh, So so the non-existent value that was never there in the first place isn't there anymore. Um, Am I supposed to kind of care massively about that when Goodwill gets written down?
1: A continually growing Goodwill balance sheet just sort of indicates that... um... That a company is is buying things way way above their um way way above the price that they're valued at. But like like we said earlier, if you're buying a high growth company, you're buying the potential of the you know the future cash flows. You're not buying the cash flows right now, so it would almost be impossible to buy a high growth uh, tech company for for book value. Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard of that happening, <laughs> but um, and, that, and that's just it just comes with the territory, doesn't it? So yeah, I think goodwill is in it. I mean, it's almost one of the things on the balance sheet that you can skip. Although it is interesting just to see, uh, to just just to see what's there, to see how they then go on to value acquisitions that they've made. Because buying lots and lots of overvalued things and seeing goodwill go up and up and up really should impact the future decisions on acquisitions. And with Salesforce uh, in particular at the moment, it looks like that probably has been the case. They're, they're laying their acquisition strategy to to rest because because they've made a lot of acquisitions over over time and. And obviously, uh, implementing these companies into your own company and, 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 and getting them on board with all the, all the things that you want them to do. And it takes a lot of company energy and that can take it away from, uh, take it away from things that matter the most. So yeah, I'm, I'm marginally interested in Goodwill, but I'm, I don't think it's anything particularly to spend much time on.
0: I mean, in general, I think the balance sheet is something to tread around kind of carefully here. So uh, while we're signing each other up then to make videos that we're not entirely sure we have the capacity to make between us, I think one day we might do a video on how to look at balance sheets, specifically the balance sheet, by the way, section of the kind of financial accounts. It strikes me that a lot of it doesn't really matter to us very much uh, as investors. So here's a good example. I own shares in Citigroup uh, and I've brought them around, I think, about 65% of book value and Citigroup's book value is mostly tangible for what it's worth it's mostly cash um but there's a good sense in which okay i if the thing gets liquidated then i could do quite well out of that but my investment thesis isn't citigroup is going to get liquidated and i'm going to get my money back plus a half uh, or something like that that's a really weird way to kind of go that's about ben graham. it that's, yeah that is properly ben graham right i mean mm. and in that situation if that were my kind of thesis here I should probably hope it gets liquidated sooner rather than later because all they're going to do is burn through those assets and by the time they get round to winding the business up, they probably won't be there anymore. So I'm unlikely to get anything out of it. Um, so so yeah, I like to sort of see things like debt being well covered, but I'm not particularly fascinated in book value as an idea of what I might get if the thing was wound up unless I think it's imminently getting wound up. And I don't think Citigroup's getting wound up anytime soon. My, my investment thesis on that has nothing to do with the idea that I'm buying it at uh, 60% of book therefore I have a kind of um insurance against it getting uh completely shut down or something along those lines becoming the next orca uh so uh, yeah, yeah balance sheets are interesting here I guess I mean I'm sort of interested in them uh and there's definitely bits that I'm very interested in but what I'm not kind of so interested in is kind of an assets liabilities thinking well look that's my base case right book value uh, is it trading below book? Yes, then it must be a buy or something for all kinds of reasons to do with imaginary goodwill assets that I don't really care about. Um, and, and far more interested in how much money is going to come in through the income statement, I guess.
1: Well, as companies become more and more sort of techy and asset light, the balance sheet becomes less and less useful to everybody. Um, so I guess for just a quick overview of what I would look for when you when you open up a balance sheet is that generally you're looking for cash, um it's it's interesting because the, the current assets I, I don't know whether you, you know this Steve, but they're, they're listed in terms of the liquidity um so the higher they are up on the list the faster that the, co- the company can get access to uh the yeah. money that's contained within those so um you start at the top so cash and cash equivalents is obviously the most uh the most liquid of the two and it and then it gets you know as you go down it gets less and less liquid so i, I would hmm. always look at the cash i mean you would look at property and plant just to make sure there's nothing crazy going on there. I would look at Goodwill because that's an interesting way to just figure out what's, you know, essentially what's going on in terms of acquisitions. And then outside of that, I'm looking at long-term debt, uh, long-term debt, and I'm looking at um, retained earnings. And not a lot outside of that is particularly interesting to me on the balance sheet. Is there anything else that jumps out at you on the balance sheet That's something you always look at? No, not
0: really. Um, so, uh, is property and plant a current asset? I thought that was in kind of non-currents, but not in the intangible section. Uh, Did I say a current? Sorry, worth.
1: it is in non-current.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, the current stuff, as I remember, is stuff that the company uh, reasonably expects, in the opinion of its auditor, to be able to liquidate within a year, right? Yeah. So, uh, it uh, includes stuff like cash, which you can get immediately uh and stuff like inventory which you expect you'll be able to shunt in the next given a year or so uh, hmm. basically to uh and auditors can decide whether or not they think that's reasonable and write up or down the value of those sorts of things uh but no that's pretty much i think what i think about the uh balance sheet i'm always interested in property plant and equipment because it's a strange thing that's listed as an asset in a certain way because hmm. it is an asset right you own it and it makes money for you so it's proper that it should be listed as an asset but I also don't like seeing massive amounts of it because I also feel like it's a thing that you have to replace and pay for every so often as well because mm. you need new machinery and stuff wears out and uh, it depreciates, basically. So I tend to like seeing that being lower rather than higher uh, for what it's worth because if all of the kind of stuff on the yeah balance sheet is just cash, well, that's fine. Cash isn't really uh, kind of doing anything. It's an opportunity for us to do something with either distribute to shareholders if you pull or go and invest in something if you're sort of uh, one of the rest of us, basically. But um, yeah, yeah, that's more or less how I think about balance sheets. Should we put some of this into practice, Steve? Cool. Let's do it. Uh, we've got some stocks that we're looking at uh, because it's June. So we've got a stocks that we're looking at buying in June. This comes with the usual disclaimer of we've no idea where share prices are going in June. We had no idea where they were going in May. But here are some things that are kind of on our radar that we're interested in having a look at. Uh, they may be more expensive by the end of June. They may be less expensive by the end of June. But they're catching our eye at the moment. Um, Want to go first, Steve?
1: I shall, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. My first stock is on the Swiss exchange. I think it also has an ADR or an ADS on the American exchange as well. Uh, It's called ABB. And uh, just to get the poll fact out of the way, it has a dividend yield of 2.77 and a 16-year history of paying it as well. So uh, on its way to one of those weird titles that I've forgotten. Um, (laughs) So... It's a Swiss-based global technology developer uh, with operations in electrification, uh, in robotics, in automation, and motion. Uh, It's the market leader in the EV charging space, which is why I've never been interested in any of those EV charging only. I always knew that the big companies would just come along and swallow it up. Uh, It's got the fastest EV charger around, Steve, and this new charger is the only product on the market that's able to charge four cars at once. Uh, So, most recent earnings, orders surged 29% year over year. Uh, ABB's (laughs) revenue growth, though, was only about 7%. And this is because it's quite an industrial-heavy company and it's getting whacked by the supply chain. Um, It did reduce its corporate costs, uh, the company's operating profit actually increased 35%. Free cash flow was around negative 500 million. This is due to some taxes due from two, ty- uh, two divestments that they made and some separation costs and some employee incentive costs because last year was a bumper year for ABB. So, full year 2022, ABB is guiding for about 6 to 8% revenue growth amid continued tight supply uh, chain. They also announced that they're going to be doing 3 billion in buybacks. So what makes Abb one of the best European stocks, in my opinion, is that uh, it's leveraged to major trends. So it's it's right in the middle of automation. It's right in the middle of robotics. It's right in the middle of electrification. It has the firm well positioned for for decent long term growth in what are sort of high growth emerging emerging markets. So, in addition, they recently acquired um, ASTI Mobile Robotics which sort of solidifies its leadership in these sort of high growth um, niches. Uh, it's a market leader in uh, the autonomous uh, mobile robotics that you may have seen in things like Amazon's warehouses and things like that. Um, it's only generating about $50 million in revenue for them at the moment, but it is growing at a 30% clip, so uh, those numbers should improve um, quite a bit. Uh, recently, they've just spun off and sold um, their uh, power transmission business. It's called Dodge, and they booked about $3 billion, um on the sale uh this was a low margin highly competitive industry so a good one for them to to exit out of uh it's also announced plans that it's going to spin off its ev charging business that we talked about earlier they said it'd be in the first half of this year i mean we're we're there now and it doesn't seem to be spun off but they do appear to be pressing ahead with it despite the market conditions uh they're also looking at spinning off another arm of the business which is called uh, they've rebranded to accelerum which is always a sign that something's going to get sold. When it stops being called ABB turbocharging and starts being called Acceleron, you know it's going somewhere else. Um, but yeah, this is basically um, high-powered, big engines for stuff like marine energy and rail uh, and, and turbocharging and things like that. So all of this, is quite a lot of change there. All of this has been happening because ABB has been under pressure for a while to increase its prof- profitability. And because an activist investor, Sevian and joined the board and demanded as much. I mean, Steve and I had a bit of a laugh off this offer. I mean, that is obvious, isn't it? It's like, okay, Mr. Why are you taking this massive stake of the company? I'd like you to make more money. Like, oh, is that your only demand? <laughs> Do you have any suggestions on how we get there? No, money. Um, but anyway, <laughs> supply chain is your issue with ABB uh, and they're getting whacked by it. Uh, but it will always be like this. So, if you want the leader in warehouse automation, EV charging, when you probably end up with a spin off of a pretty decent business there, robotics, they're also in energy generation. Then here's your company. Uh, I'll give you some little valuation metrics. So, this is a price to earnings, cash to day kind of company. Uh, Growth in revenue is only about 8 to 10%. It already does 29 billion in revenue, uh, about 4.55 billion in net income, which is a 16% margin. Not bad for an industrial. Uh, That gives us a PE of about 20 and about 2.5 billion in annual free cash flow. Steve?
0: So, we're about to spin off our EV charging unit and our kind of turbo unit. If that happens, which are you more interested in? I kind of like the idea of a market-leading EV charging thing. That seems like a nice sort of infrastructure uh, play for electrification, which, let's be honest, we all know is coming. Uh, The only real question is how fast. And even then, there's a sort of a window that says, I don't really care whether it's sooner rather than later, because it's not going to be 50 years, right? Uh, It's going to be quickly. Um, Are you more interested in the spin-offs here, or are you interested in the core?
1: Both uh, is the short answer to that. I think the um, the electrification is a interesting EV charging, very interesting business, uh, high growth. They'll get um, they'll probably get a good price for that if they were to spin it off, sell it, or to even to IPO it. I reckon they'd end up with some decent decent kind of money for that. Um, but um, the automation part of the business, the robotics, the the warehouse automation, especially, I think that I can see a clear path to. fully fully or almost fully automated warehouses and uh, ABB are very much the leader in that space um, competing against Amazon obviously but you would imagine not too many competitors to Amazon all want to buy from Amazon Um, so I think ABB is a pretty interesting company one of the other things is that they're actually looking at they're working with Repsol at the moment on their um, the hydroelectric plants to make them more efficient as well so ABB is kind of God, it's got its fingers in a lot of pies, and it's well-loved in, in the EU space.
0: So, you mentioned there was this activist involvement here. When would that kind of come about? Is that in the last month or so?
1: Mm. Let me just Google that and we'll cut this So out.
0: here's the reason I'm asking this while I uh, while I give you a chance to find out the answer. Um, I'm looking at this price chart and it's up and down over the last year or so, uh, but it was heading down into May and has come up a bit again lately. I'm working out whether that's a general market movement or whether it's something broader because activist interest uh, can sometimes push, a, uh, a I guess, a faltering share price, for what that's worth, um, higher because as we were saying before, Yes, they all want to say, they all have an idea when they get involved with any company, whether it's Disney or Intel or Unilever or or ABB. Um, I think this company has the something about it, the the resources, the equipment, the brands, the something to do better than it currently is. And I think it's being mismanaged, basically. And obviously, that can be kind of encouraging for shareholders to think, oh, wow, Unilever hasn't grown its uh, revenue in the last 10 years or so. Maybe we should uh be pleased that there's an opportunity for someone here to kind of do that nelson peltz in that case but um yeah when did uh, i'm trying to map this onto my kind of price chart that i have going on here steve when did this come about
1: So they um they actually took a stake in 2016 um so it's quite a while back but they've been reducing and increasing that stake over a period of time probably like uh, as a sign of approval or disapproval i I would assume Mm
0: -hmm. so significantly further back than my poor trading 212 chart will go here uh, which uh, acknowledges the beginning of this company around August the 25th, 2019. Which uh, that was another thing I noted actually, this being a Swiss company. We can come back to that in a second, but uh, able to find the kind of Swiss listing?
1: Yeah, I found the Swiss listing. Uh, it's basically up about 50% since they took over, right. so it's been a slow China. From yeah, twenty twenty. That,
0: that makes sense. So, so encouraging things there. Of course, this being a Swiss company. Uh, it's a good job you presented this in stocks to buy in June or stocks to think about buying in June rather than in stocks for Paul because, of course, as you know, Paul will never buy a Swiss company because the dividends get taxed too much for his liking.
1: Um, I think there's a 30% withholding tax on Swiss companies, I think. There is, Um, yeah. One for for the listener to check out if they're interested.
0: It will also depend on exactly where you're listening from in the world, of course. So if you are one of our non-existent Swiss listeners, uh, this probably doesn't apply to you. Uh, I guess... Well, ABB, why have I never heard of this company before? This sounds like it's in every kind of Cathy Wood sector, basically. Is it because it's just not disruptive enough and it's supposed to be a kind of electric charging Intel or something?
1: Uh, well, probably the the reason for that is um, that it's growing too slowly to be uh, too exciting for people, I think. It, it's probably And the and guess that it, it's, it's Swiss. Uh, is probably another issue. But then again, I mean, you've heard of Rush. Um, so, heard of I Rush, have guess-
0: heard of Novartis, yep.
1: Yeah, is um, is Lonza? Is that Swiss as well? I think there is some pretty big Swiss companies out there. Credit Suisse, good we hear question. about them all the time. Whenever there's a, whenever there's a scandal, it's always Credit Suisse. Um, yeah, those are
0: not a good example. Uh, Russian and <laughs> Novartis, I hear good things about for what it's worth. I never hear that they're kind of all terrible. And Cathy would, I think, owned the pair of them at, uh, at one point anyway. And I lose track of what she's uh, buying and selling because... It happens too fast for me, basically. Um, but there's definitely a point where she was big on both of those, suits. So she, she's aware of the existence of Switzerland and that there are innovative things happening I, there. I just had a quick look, Steve, just out of interest, and we do oh, have no. listeners
1: from Switzerland, so we apologise oh, if Steve's offended you. Yeah, uh, They're from Zurich and from Luzern, it says. Lucerne. Oh. oh, wonderful. Hello, welcome
0: thank you uh and if you know anything about abb please do whack it in the comments because we'd be interested to uh hear about it i guess and Hmm. definitely one for you uh swiss listeners okay um here's my stock to buy in june we'll see if we get we've both got two lined up we'll see if we get onto them or whether we run out of time after this one but i also have not selected a us listed stock because uh like you steve i'm looking to spread myself out across uh geographic diversities and so on uh with my stock portfolio not in my physical self um I've selected one of the few UK companies that I think I'm actually interested in owning. and I've been interested in owning it for a little while, but I've never really seen it at a price I kind of like. It might be here, though. Companies called Experian. Um, You've probably seen them because they have a horrible set of adverts. Uh, They are all about your credit history and your credit rating and your credit score and loads of other things like that. Um, What they are is effectively... Uh, a credit bureau that provides advice to lenders, so mortgage lenders, loan companies, any of those sorts of things that want to know about your credit worthiness, they will ask realistically, I think, all three of the major uh, credit bureaus if they're big enough. So Equifax and TransUnion uh, are the other two. Realistically, if you're lending someone sort of 450000 in mortgage uh, or something like that, You're going to ask all three of them because they don't just do the same thing. They have their own approaches. They have their own methodologies. They have different kind of different insights, although they will often agree with each other. Um, And their services are all cheap enough that it's worth it to a mortgage lender to take all of them. Right. So it's the old thing about if I owe you 400 quid, uh, that's probably my problem. And if I owe you 400,000, that's probably your problem uh, if I don't pay these things back. Uh, which makes Experian important in a certain way. They have massive great databases, which is the source of their moat, which makes it pretty much impossible for anyone to kind of barge in on them, uh, from what I can see of it. Financials then, uh, let's talk about those things. I've been going on about uh, property, plant and equipment, and you would expect from a company where its big asset is its database, um, it's not too heavy uh, on the fixed assets here. They denominate their balance sheet in dollars because... They also trade OTC, so uh, not just a UK-listed thing, but is in the FTSE 100. They have about $415 million in fixed assets, and that generates about $1.36 in operating income. And as a general rule of thumb, this very much varies from company to company and from sector to sector, extremely so. Uh, anything where it's generating more in operating income than in fixed assets is a good sign. Uh, especially, well, equally so if you think it will do that in the future because it's currently its operating income is fairly low. So think about Salesforce or something like that. That currently doesn't fit this, but I would expect it to over time. Uh, Retained earnings, which is what I'm looking for in a kind of growthy company, are creeping up steadily and CapEx is around 30% of the operating cash flow. So it's not the case that all this money coming in is going to get hammered out into capital expenditures again uh debt from what i can see seems reasonably manageable uh for a company like this when you have companies that are reasonably well protected in their sector because there isn't huge amounts of competition it can be the case that they start doing creative things with their balance sheets and i didn't see a huge amount of that they run a negative working capital model by which i mean their current liabilities are higher than their current assets uh which is something of an issue Uh, or it can be anyway. It can also mean that you're basically getting free financing uh, from your suppliers, which is largely what's going on uh, in the case of these things. I think Amazon might also run such a thing. Other, you know, reputable companies that do this, uh, P&G, Starbucks, McDonald's, I think, all run negative working capital uh, models. But the debt in general seems to be kind of manageable to me. Okay, let's talk valuation then uh, for a moment, because I said this has been coming down quite a bit since the start of the year, and I've annoyingly forgotten to look up exactly how much it's off uh, year to date. But uh, currently has a market cap of around 23.5 billion. Uh, another 3 billion in debt. Not much cash kicking around, just under 120 million, and a free cash flow yield of a billion means around 3.9% uh, yield at the moment. That's not super high, but there's reason to think this might push up uh, reasonably well. It's growing at around 10%. If it keeps doing that, you're averaging six and a bit percent after 10 years. Another 5% for 10 more years gets you to close to 9%. And then if it stays flat, you're looking at averaging around 11% for 30-year investment. Um, I don't think that's going to be what the indexes do uh, for what it's worth here. I'm not of the view that says everything's overpriced, but somehow the index is going to magically return 15% because it always does. To me, that's just an impossibility. Nothing in the index is going to return 15%, but the index as a whole is. No idea what that means uh there are obvious risks here and they're kind of similar to the risks in your very different industrial thing uh steve you mentioned supply chain shortages i've got interest rates coming up they're both macro risks uh, effectively that we've got going on here and experian kind of talks about this in their most recent earnings call and they said interest rates coming up is making mortgage lending uh a bit more restricted it's making demand for uh mortgages go down It's slowing house price growth, um, and all of these things are basically weighing on the demand side of their business. So over the short term, I'm expecting some uninspiring numbers uh, to come out of this company. But I'm thinking it's fairly well protected, and over the long term, I think it's going to do reasonably okay. Uh, The fact that we're looking at a kind of murky macroeconomic outlook, to me, says this might be an opportunity to pile in uh, on Experian.
1: So I just had a quick look for you, Steve. Experience down about thirty percent year to date. So twenty nine point, uh, well, twenty nine point one three percent year to date. So it's come down quite a bit, really, from thirty six hundred to it's about. Twenty-five seventy-seven at the moment. So.
0: Twenty-five is the mark I have marked on it to buy it for what it's worth. It's just above that at the moment, I think, about twenty-five seventy-seven. And of course, market shut today because it's a bank holiday. Yeah, I didn't like it thirty percent ago uh, at the start of the year. Uh, I feel a bit more warmly to it now because I got kind of kicked back into looking at this recently, and then thought, oh yeah, I've sort of taken my eye off that because I've been looking at Alphabet and Amazon and everything else over the last few.
1: Um. So a really good thing for Experian was. Um... Recently, they've they've managed to get themselves quite a quite a chunk of new business. Essentially, in that, um, uh, Klarna have decided that they'll start reporting to um, to mm. Experian and TransUnion, uh, which means that they're going to get um, obviously quite a lot of uh, new business through this. The knock on effect of that is Experian essentially are now giving away your credit report for free, so they don't make any money on that. What they do is they sell a value added service on top of it, so they will teach you how to improve your credit score, and they will also um, do like a fraud alert service for you as well, which uh, is another sort of added value on top. So that's really important for Experian. Now, uh, the, one of the issues that I, you had with credit reports coming up and, and you've seen it in America with the, they have the, the FICO the FICO score is that upstart was coming along and saying, look, you don't need that crap. We can sort out a loan. We can source it and we can sell it um, without needing that. We, we can source that data um Publicly, and of course, we've had that um, with um, payday lenders. Essentially, they didn't they didn't report to Experian either, and they've obviously since collapsed. So, Klarna um, now reporting to Experian adds an air of credibility to their their lending process. So, Experian is is obviously is obviously seen as that as well. Um, so, yeah, I think Experian is quite well poised at the moment. I, I would still say it's perhaps a little bit expensive for its for its growth. Um, potential but i think there's quite a lot to like about it really it's, it's an irish company isn't it steve
0: it's uh, yeah it's headquartered in ireland i i wonder exactly whether it's an irish company or whether it's one of these things that's headquartered in Ireland for tax purposes because a lot of things are um, it reports earnings in dollars from what i can see of it or at least it reports its financial statements in dollars is listed on the footsie uh, and has an otc listing so it's yeah uh, scattered a little bit but i believe it is actually based out of ireland i guess here's how i'm sort of thinking about this a little bit i guess i feel like this is in an area where it reminds me a bit of credit ratings in general uh and i'm thinking of buffett's investment in moody's which he said pointed out that um it's something where berkshire uh, his company has to basically get uh, a credit rating from moody's and i don't want to but they have to get one and they realistically have to pay for one uh, and it's a service that I think even if this stuff gets more and more automated, isn't going to go away because they will always want the sign off from s Global or Moody's or hmm. uh, Fitch is the other one or something like that. So, yeah, it may well become far more uh, algo-driven one way or another. But I don't think that's going to be a huge issue here because I think there's always going to want to be a sign-off behind these kind of things, mostly because it's a way of managing the enormous risk that banks take on in lending mortgages to people. Hmm. Uh, They're all on holiday today, of course, so probably Experian isn't doing anything much. But, uh, yeah, this is one of the ones where I think I can at least detect a half-decent moat coming out of this. And actually, it was seeing uh, S&P Global dropping the other day that caused me to look back at Experian
1: again. Um, yeah, Uh, this is just a, a good example of a, of a sort of I guess a, a, an asset-like business that is actually converting to profitability. I'm um, just having a quick look down the metrics now and you can see that, I mean, revenue has essentially slowed. It's uh, uh, 11.85% year over year. But if you actually look down their income, their EPS and the net profit margin, they're growing a lot faster. So net income at the moment is growing up over 38%. Um, diluted EPS is growing up over 35%. Net profit margin is actually growing at 23.5%. So this is uh, an example of a company pivoting to profitability, uh, which is quite interesting to see it's, uh, 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 you know, one of those companies that even if you're not going to buy it, it's a good thing to go and have a look at it and just see how fast these asset like companies can turn on the profit screw.
0: Yeah, sorry, I forgot the important bit. Oh, that's annoying. Um, we might have to go back and reshoot this, but I forgot to say the important bit that stock has a 1.5% dividend yield, uh, most <laughs> importantly uh, for poor minded <laughs> investors and so on. Um, and the share count, I think I looked at it. I think it's. It goes up sometimes and it comes down sometimes, to be honest. I didn't see anything particularly significant worth commenting on there uh, one way or another, but in case anyone's interested and it's an important part of your uh, thing you look for in companies and you're looking for it to check certain boxes, I think it's been coming down over five years and ten years, but it hasn't been coming down linear or anything like that. They print more shares when they see it right to print more shares. Uh, They buy back shares when they see it's right to buy back more shares. You can agree or disagree with them on that, but I don't think they have a standing commitment to... uh, uh saying ah we will um constantly be bringing down shares and one last thought actually which i did look up because i know it's very important the ex-dividend date this is one that pays uh its dividends twice yearly bigger one smaller one the ex-dividend date for the bigger one i think is coming up later this month so it's a great stock to buy in (laughs) june
1: i like it (laughs)
0: Anyway, uh, those are our stocks. I guess we'll leave it there. We've crossed the hour mark for a moment and we'll save our other two for another day. You can find out what they are uh, maybe next time when Paul's back on the show, probably. Uh, And and learn about whatever he's been up to as well. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, This has been our show. I hope you're all having a wonderful bank holiday weekend uh, and enjoying the Platinum Jubilee, whatever it is you're doing uh do leave us a like on youtube leave us a nice review ask us a question we're still interested in hearing them even though we've wound up the midweek thing for the moment and we will attempt to talk about them in ways on the show as best we can but for now thanks for listening and bye